welcome to the Medical College of Wisconsin's Coffee Conversations with Scientists. I'm your host, Raina Andrews, and for those of you tuning in for the first time, let me introduce myself. I am a mother, a children's book author, a public health advocate, and an engaged community member. I'm your host for the 2023 Coffee Conversations with Scientists series. You know, Coffee Conversations is brought to you by the Advancing a Healthy Wisconsin Endowment, a statewide nonprofit working to improve health and advance health equity in Wisconsin. Since early in 2021, we have been sharing the science behind today's most important health topics. Now, today, we are covering a very timely topic. As May is Women's Healthcare Month, we thought it was important to shed light on some of the pressing matters impacting women's health. There are stark racial disparities in maternal and infant health across the United States, and particularly here in Wisconsin. The, dis the, the real disparate impact of the COVID-19 pandemic for people of color has brought a new focus to health disparities, including the longstanding inequities in maternal and infant health. Recently, there has been increased attention and focus on improving maternal and infant health and reducing disparities in these areas, including a range of efforts at the federal level. Today, we'll explore new research that helps explain the rising disparities and risks in maternal health. So today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Anna Palatnik, um, with the Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Palatnik, welcome. Thank you, Rihanna. It's great to be here. Wonderful. So folks out there in the interwebs, we'll be covering a great list of questions on the trends, facts, and misconceptions associated with the state of maternal health and possibly explain what's causing these disparities. I encourage all of you watching to drop any questions you have on the topic into the comments section. We'll be getting to as many questions as possible. All right, so let's get started. So Dr. Palatnik, I think you are a phenomenal resource in just agent of change, and we're so lucky to have you today. My first question for you is, what do you do as a maternal health, maternal fetal health medicine physician? What, what, what do you do? What is that? Uh, thank you for this question. So first I will explain what does it mean, maternal fetal medicine physician? It means that I'm an OBGYN who is trained in management of high-risk pregnancies. The pregnancy can be high-risk when a pregnant individual has a medical complication before or during pregnancy or when the fetus has a high-risk condition requiring close surveillance during pregnancy and after birth. And specifically here at the Medical College of Wisconsin, I do both clinical work. I see patients in clinic. I deliver patients on labor delivery uh, that have uh, high-risk pregnancies. I put, uh, in procedure, do procedures like putting cerclages to prevent preterm birth. And also uh, I do research, uh, mainly clinical research. Mm -hmm. Well, Tell us a bit about your research, and I think it's important to distinguish that you're not only a practitioner in the space where you have patients that you see, but you also research this. So you're addressing the issue that's at hand, but also looking at upstream. So tell us just a little bit about some of the research that you do and that you've done. Yes. Uh, so it's uh, my research is primarily clinical. It involves pregnant uh, people, pre pregnant and birthing people with a focus on uh, a few conditions such as gestational diabetes and uh, preeclampsia or what is known as hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. I study clinical interventions to improve management of gestational diabetes and also ways to reduce the risk of heart disease following uh, pregnancy complicated by preeclampsia. And I also work with community organizations to develop interventions to reduce health disparities in maternal health. 
Got it. And so in my opening statement, I shared that the, the, the terms, the buzzwords of maternal health and high-risk pregnancy, um, this has been a growing issue over the decades. And um, we often hear these terms thrown around. So for the, for, for the context of our conversation of speaking maternal health in the context of high-risk pregnancy, how should we de be defining this? How should we frame it for our conversation today? Yes, that's a very good point. Anna. So maternal health includes health before pregnancy or what we call preconception period and health during pregnancy, during childbirth and after giving birth in the postpartum period. A lot of progress has been made in improving maternal health, but still many women start pregnancy with suboptimal health and many experience complications, both medical complications and obstetric complications in pregnancy and in childbirth. So when we talk about maternal health, we need to talk about two terms of uh, one term is maternal morbidity and one term of maternal mortality. Maternal mortality or pregnancy-related death defined as death during pregnancy or within one year of the end of pregnancy for from any cause related or aggravated by the pregnancy. But, but this is just the tip of the iceberg as many more women suffer from morbidity and disability following childbirth, which impacts their overall health. We don't know the, the true extent of maternal morbidity, but it has been suggested that for each maternal death, 30 and even more women will have maternal morbidity. And when we say maternal morbidity, we refer to any health condition attributed to pregnancy or complicating pregnancy and childbirth that has a negative impact on women's well-being. And specifically in the U.S., there are significant disparities in maternal morbidity and mortality as we can show you right now um, in a graph. Mm -hmm. Perhaps we have some uh, technical difficulties. So if you can speak to the graph that's on your screen, the blue one, um, I think the people out in Facebook world can see it. Great. Mm -hmm. Yes, so, so this graph shows rates of maternal uh, mortality in the U.S. It looks at the years of 2014 and 2017, and it shows the number of deaths per 100,000 live births. And in this graph, we see that um, pregnancy-related uh, mortality is uh, elevated among American Indian and Alaska Native, Asian Pacific Islanders, and for certain subgroups of Hispanic women, including Puerto Ricans in specific region within the U.S., and uh, also you can see uh, that non-Hispanic Black women, uh, they, they have had the, the fastest rate of increase in maternal death since the, uh, about 2007. Wow. The disparity that the non-Hispanic Black, the graph on the left, has uh, the highest rates of pregnancy-related death. So in this context, we're really talking about with, with um, high-risk pregnancies, those with preeclampsia, pre-term birth, pre gestational diabetes, th those three high, three main factors of high risk. Now let's talk about why are there such stark disparities between black women and white women with high-risk pregnancy when we talk about morbidity? Yes, the uh, so disparities in maternal health and morbidity and mortality, they're complex and they are a result, we think of a numerous factors. Numerous factors, including social, environmental, biological, behavioral, as well as healthcare factors. This topic has been studied by several leaders in the field of maternal fetal medicine and in other fields. And the leading notion is that disparities are due to a combination of factors, 
So we'll look at patient factors such as socioeconomic status, race and ethnicity, certain behaviors, overall health before pregnancy. Then we'll look at the community and neighborhood factors such as uh, is there uh, or there's lack of social networks, uh, how good is the built environment, access to stable housing. Uh, and we also have provider factors, provider knowledge, implicit bias, uh, how good their communication skills and system factors such as uh, does a patient have access to high uh, quality care, uh, structural barriers, structural racism, and uh, certain social and political policies. And the combination of these factors results in a maternal health test that, that we have right now, such as presence of chronic illness before pregnancy, and also pregnancy complications, which may or may not lead to maternal morbidity and mortality. So just to be clear, what we're talking about here is not just women going full term with their pregnancies, like women not giving birth and not making it out of the birthing room. Right, right. That That's that's alarming. Yes. Let, let's talk about um, the role that income plays in this. How does income affect this disparity? This is an interesting question. Initially, many of the health disparities in maternal health were attributed to low socioeconomic status. Uh, when a mother has to worry about day-to-day -day expenses and income and basic daily needs, attending routine prenatal visits or taking medications regularly cannot be prioritized. But it is important to note that disparities go beyond class. We have one more graph uh, to show with our listeners. Um, and in, in, that, uh, in that graph, you, you can see that um, even in patients that have high education, there are disparities in, uh, um, in mortality by race and ethnicity. In this graph, uh, pregnancy-related mortality ratios are presented by education attainment. Mm -hmm. And disparities persist even in the highest education group on the right, college graduate or higher, mm -hmm. uh, with Black women being more than five times more likely to die from pregnancy-related cause as compared to a white woman with a college education. So, so it's definitely uh, goes beyond income and it goes into um, other factors. You know, this is disturbing, Dr. Platnik. If, if I could be so transparent, I am a mother, like I, I mentioned in my introduction, of, of a five-year-old brilliant little boy. But I mean, I'm educated. I have a, two masters. I um, have the means to take care of myself, my child. And I was considered at the age of 35 when I had my son to be a high risk pregnancy. And I, I was not clear on why that is because I had all the tools, I had a doula. And so I could speak up for myself and advocate for myself. So I'm not understanding why even I would be at high risk. Is it just because I'm a black woman? So uh, based on what you're describing, they probably use the, the age factor. So anyone who's 35 and older, it's one of the criteria for uh, being a high-risk pregnancies, more so for high risk of, uh, you know, fetal complications, high risk of genetic problems, birth defects, but also with age, there's more uh, complications with uh, maternal health as well, high risk of diabetes, hypertension. So all that factors why patients would be high risk at the age of 35 and beyond. Mm. So the less economic means, the higher risk, but what you're saying is that they used to think that income used to be a big driver, but now it's not as absolute. It's, exactly. It's not an absolute. It's not. So what impact does diet have on maternal health outcomes? Uh, 
I'm uh, I'm passionate about diet and lifestyle, but I have to tell you that diet has been understudied in maternal health. In my opinion, this is a health factor that can be modified and potentially improve maternal and fetal health. Preconception or before pregnancy access to healthy diet can reduce hypertension and obesity. Uh, and during pregnancy, it's important to follow recommendations of how much weight a pregnant patient should gain or what we call gestational weight gain. And, the, and adhering to these recommendations can help reduce the risk of gestational diabetes. Diet also plays important role postpartum. Diet, um, especially in patients that have hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, preeclampsia, or gestational diabetes, uh, by keeping a good diet, reducing intake of processed food that contain high level of uh, saturated fat, sugar, and salt, women can, um, I believe, at least partially reverse the trajectory of uh, long-term um, cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. I, I think <clears throat> gestational diabetes, people get that gestational diabetes is diabetes while you're pregnant. Preeclampsia is more of becoming hypertensive while you're pregnant, correct? And so are there indicators prior to, like, can you not have diabetes or not have hypertension prior to getting pregnant, but develop that while you're pregnant? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Some women have a predisposing risk factors, for example, carrying extra weight before pregnancy or having, um, you know, a kidney disease does increase the risk of uh, hypertension and diabetes in pregnancy. But some some women don't have that many uh apparent risk factors. We try to identify patients that have risk factors, for example, for preeclampsia. And if uh, patients have these risk factors, we have one strategy to reduce the risk of giving patients low-dose aspirin, which is safe in pregnancy mm -hmm. and can reduce the risk of preeclampsia. But we still need to do research in this area. That's the only intervention we have to reduce preeclampsia today, baby aspirin. There's nothing else really uh, that has been shown uh, that is working. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that obesity, like being overweight is really a culprit and a gateway for a number of these chronic diet related diseases. Exactly. Yes. We, uh, we what have is the appropriate amount of weight that someone could or should gain during pregnancy. Yeah. So it depends on the starting body mass index, uh, but uh, for a normal weight patient, the recommended weight gain is between 25 and 35 pounds. And then we reduce it. If, if, if a patient starts pregnancy overweight with BMI of 30, then we recommend between 11 and 20 pounds weight gain uh, in pregnancy. Okay. So <laughs> I, I remember when I was pregnant with my son, I was very particular about what I ate because I know what I ate is what he eats or he consumes in some way. And so I was very diligent, but there are some times where I just wanted a Sunday and you have these cravings. And I was, I was very meticulous about not going overboard and using me being pregnant as a license to eat everything in sight. So with that, I, I do have a, another question for you. And it's, it's particularly around um, this disparity. You, you know, you shared some really stark realities with the first graph that you showed, the blue and white one. And it just makes me think, this is a huge problem where women are dying Pregnant women are dying. They're not making it even to the delivery room. I'm just wondering what advancements are being made to truly address some of these disparities. Yeah, that, that's a very important uh, topic. There, there are advancements. So many professional organizations, including our uh, Organization of American College of OBGYNs and Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine and other health organizations, 
promote policies to reduce maternal health disparities. For example, one policy is for each state to have perinatal quality collaborative, uh, or what we call PQC. It's a, it's a multi-state network of teams working to improve quality of care for mothers and babies. They identify you know, where we can improve and how quickly we can make this change. Uh, in addition, each state has maternal mortality review committee, and we uh, recommend to report these mortality uh, cases by race and ethnicity. Many states expanded Medicaid coverage through 12 months postpartum. We are working on this for Wisconsin. Currently, the coverage is only for 60 days postpartum. Uh, specifically, at the Medical College of Wisconsin and Freighter uh, Birth Center, where I work, uh, healthcare providers undergo education on racial and ethnic disparities in maternal outcomes, the importance of shared decision-making with patients, the importance of uh, training in implicit bias, being aware of your implicit bias, uh, education about how to communicate effectively with patients. Uh, we also implemented a disparity dashboard, which stratifies quality metrics by race and ethnicity. Important to say, we're also partnering with community organizations. You mentioned, Rana, that you had a doula uh, mm -hmm. to support your labor, but not every uh, woman has access to doula. In Wisconsin and many other states, uh, doula services are not covered. Uh, and, and also, many doulas, there's not enough doulas. So we, we are helping working with community uh, organizations such as African American Breastfeeding Network uh, here in Milwaukee and Wisconsin Collective Doulas of Color helping train their doulas, and and by this uh, way that to diversify our prenatal workforce and to have doula support throughout uh, prenatal care and postpartum. Uh, in addition, we implemented protocols and checklists. We want to standardize care on labor and delivery so each patient gets the same care because when there's no guidelines, then there's room for uh, bias. Uh, another important thing that I strongly advocated for is to add postpartum remote monitoring, especially for patients that had preeclampsia or hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. Patients go home and many of them have complications the first two weeks postpartum. They can have severe range of blood pressure, they can have stroke. And, and this is the time when they don't have such an intense follow-up as they had when they were pregnant. And especially for patients who come to deliver here and live in a rural area. So having this remote monitoring, having a blood pressure cuff at home, that is being monitored by our team here uh, is a very important step uh, in improving postpartum care. And uh, you know, beyond Wisconsin, other things that are being done in the US are, uh, for example, there is a model of group prenatal care. It's actually it's being done in, in a few hospitals here in, in Milwaukee, mm -hmm. uh, having something called maternal medical home, which is a care coordination by a nurse and a social worker that also provides home visits. And it provides financial incentive for healthcare organizations uh, for participation and, and achieving, for example, a vaginal birth. So the hospital can get uh, higher incentive if a patient has a vaginal birth. Uh, other initiatives include uh, patient navigation postpartum, uh, in general, increasing access to mobile health technologies that provide also patient education and support. And uh, last one I will mention, I'm sure there are more that I didn't mention, but last one I will mention that um, developing pipelines for increasing diversity, both in clinical side among uh, physician nurses, and also in uh, researchers and people who do research in maternal health. Uh, we know that diverse teams perform better, um, they, they learn from each other, so that's another initiative we're working on. I, I 
you said it's not an exhausting list, but that is a lot to hear. And I'm really encouraged to hear that there's so many advancements happening at once. And I'm really curious, um, outside of the institution, how community is really maybe being sought after to provide a voice in this and to, and to, and to maybe advise with some of these advancements. Yeah, this is something uh, here we're active, actively working on, not to work in silo in our academic hospital, academic university, but to partner with communities, partner with community organizations who uh, take care both of pregnant patients, but also reproductive age patients who may become uh, pregnant and to provide more education. We have a, a few of my um, colleagues going to um, high school and universities to provide education mm -hmm. about uh, you know healthy diet uh, access to birth control and uh, in in general the concept of planning pregnancy before pregnancy starts right right so yeah definitely part uh, we're always looking for more uh, community uh, partners this is very encouraging so we see we i see we have some activity in the chat so i'm going to ask my last two questions and we're going to open it up to our audience okay so my question is it's a bit controversial, Dr. Palatnik, but, you know, with the overturn of Roe v. Wade, um, how does this barrier to abortion, particularly for people of color, widen the already existing large disparities in maternal and infant health? So just, just like you said, it's, there's already a, a wide gap. People of color face more barriers to accessing healthcare in general. And, and, and now they have more limited access to coverage for abortion. Uh, they may have more limited financial resources and may face other increased barriers to accessing abortion, especially when they need to travel now out of state. And also many of the states that restricted or banned abortions, they do not have the needed infrastructure to support the parents and children. A recent study showed that mothers and children in states with the toughest abortion restrictions tend to have less access to healthcare and financial assistance, which ultimately leads to worse outcomes. So with that, I do have kind of like a wrap-it round question, but I want to turn to our audience. I see they're pretty active in the chat here. The first question does, is, does prenatal maternal mental health play a role in maternal morbidity? I'll ask that again. Does prenatal or maternal mental health play a role in maternal morbidity? Yeah, thank you for uh, for asking this question. I actually did not address it in these questions, but it has been on my mind. It, it definitely, it definitely plays a role. Um, we know that uh, maternal uh, mental health is associated with many adverse outcomes, high risk of uh, preterm birth, actually high risk even of uh, gestational hypertension, and that can it can be depression, it can be um, you know anxiety and other uh, mental health problems. And especially before pregnancy, patients don't have uh, good enough access to uh, to mental health providers that uh, can even worsen um, outcomes for these patients. Mm -hmm. um, in your question of, of, in my question of advancements and what's being done, you mentioned um, access to doulas. And one of the questions from our audience is what role or how can doulas really help with these disparities? It's a good question. There, there is research showing that doulas help improve communication and there being an extra voice advocating for the patient. And they help what we say diversify the perinatal workforce. And um, I think that that's an important link. Right now, 
doulas operate most of the time in parallel to healthcare providers. So patient sees doulas separately and then the patient sees uh, the healthcare providers. I think the ultimate goal to improve this collaboration is to, to have doulas be more integrated in the prenatal care, meet the provider ahead of time, uh, so that um, I think that improves trust among all three partners, patient, provider, and the doula, um, improve communication and uh, communication. We know it's a big piece of uh, what's happening on labor and delivery and uh, birth outcomes. Mm -hmm. So I think you 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 kind of touched on it, but the follow-up question to that is how is the work of a doula coordinated with the OB team? Yeah, exactly. So I, I think we need to work on improving that coordination. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in my ideal uh, vision for that, and we just applied for a grant to to develop a model like that uh, mm -hmm. together with a community partner, the African American Breastfeeding Network. Uh, um, Breastfeeding Network. We uh, applied to create a model where doula works very closely with obstetric providers, where <clears throat> all providers in labor and delivery, nurses, residents, students, aware of the benefits of doula. So educate both the uh, providers. Uh, and the tra uh, trainees here in the healthcare uh, system about the benefits of doulas and also introduce doulas earlier to prenatal care. So once all parties know each other and feel comfortable with each other, patients will get better uh, care. I could say for me, I was like, I knew nothing about birthing a baby. And so right away when I learned that I was pregnant, I, I did get a doula. And to your point, not only opening up communication, but also managing expectations. I need to have a birthing plan. What's a birthing plan? Going through this questionnaire, what my wishes were. And, you know, even after I gave, gave birth, like, do I plan on breastfeeding, getting prepared for that? And so I, I, I'm so encouraged that you've written this grant and opened up the opportunity to connect those really key pieces in support of the patient's overall health. Um, two more questions. We have way more, but we have time for two more questions. Does standardized maternity care actually improve outcomes? That's such a good question. So when I started medicine, I looked at that as an art. There's an art of medicine. Everyone needs an individual approach. And yes, th there is a role, but you still need to see the patient in front of you and decide what's best for her. And I still think there is room for that. But I think in this day and age with with such terrible disparities and biases, I think at this today we do need standardized uh, guidelines. We, we need standardized guidelines so that every patient gets the same care, the same high quality of care. Um, and once we eliminate the disparities, then we can, uh, I think, shift back to art of medicine. Mm -hmm. And in that question of standardized maternity, standardized maternity care, and asking, does it actually improve? Their assumption was that individualized care would lead to better outcomes for pregnant and laboring people. Is is that a correct assumption? I would say it's a combination. Of course, we, we, we always individualize care, but when I talk about standardized uh, approach, for example, one of my research project is uh, studying how best to manage gestational diabetes. There, in fact, you would be surprised there's no guidelines when exactly to start insulin, how many high blood sugars are needed to start insulin. And we did the research and we found that because there's no guidelines, each patient gets insulin at different time points. And, and we proposed this project to standardize this, to study and make sure all patients get uh, the same treatment at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we have such a, an engaged group today. You know, would you mind if we forewin our rapid round question so we can at least get to these last three questions, which I think are really good and will, and will really serve for our conversation today? Do you mind if we just dive into those? Yes, let's do it. 
So um, th this one question is for a patient who had preeclampsia previously, are they at risk to have preeclampsia again in a subsequent pregnancy? Yes, they are. And what's very interesting, now we know that not only they're at the risk of preeclampsia in next pregnancy, but we think that, well, no, they're at high risk of long-term heart disease, long-term hyper chronic hypertension, uh, you know, infarct, heart failure, and it will happen earlier than patients that did not have preeclampsia. So we think pregnancy was like a stress test that revealed what's our bodies at risk for long-term. And that's wow. part of my research. That's interesting. And I think the question that we asked before, like what role does nutrition play? And you're like, when you're pregnant, you really have to focus on it. But when you talk about maternal and, and, and pre-pregnancy planning, like getting your diet and lifestyle together. So even in utero, you are eating the, the foods to encourage a healthy birth outcome, but also postpartum maintaining that diet, especially if you have preeclampsia, because you're at higher risk, as you said, of heart disease and other cardiovascular um, challenges. Exactly right, exactly right. So this next question is, how does Wisconsin compare to national statistics and disparities? Yes, that's also a very good question. So uh, depends what condition we'll look at. For example, if we look at preterm birth, that affects about 10% of uh, pregnancies in the US, Wisconsin's doing okay, it's 0.1% under that. But if we look at preterm birth rate by race and ethnicity, we're one of the leading states in, in highest preterm birth rate among non-Hispanic Black patients. And the same if we look at infant mortality, unfortunately, Milwaukee is one of the, um, it has one of the highest maternal mortality rates uh, for uh, Black babies. So for some conditions, uh, we, we're not doing well. And, and for some, we are... Uh, compared to other states. Hmm. So this last question, I think, goes hand in hand with the doula question, but this one is asking, how do you suggest new nurses work to get new mothers to nurse and change the culture around nursing in Wisconsin? That's a good question. So so that's uh, nursing, nurses that work in the hospital that or about the doulas? It's nursing... So it's a two-part question. So the first part is, how do you suggest new nurses, like nurses new to the field, work to get the mother to nurse, as in breastfeed, and really change the culture around how nursing is seen in Wisconsin, breastfeeding is seen in Wisconsin? Okay, I see. So I think this effort should start earlier. Once the patient gets pregnant, mm -hmm. already during pregnancy, we need to talk about that. The obstetric provider... And the doula, if the patient has the doula, should talk about all the uh, benefits of breastfeeding. It's not just the baby that will benefit from breastfeeding, but it also the mom will benefit from breastfeeding. I did not mention that we did not talk about breastfeeding, but for example, patients that have gestational diabetes, if they breastfeed, they have a lower risk of type 2 diabetes. Oh, wow. And now there's research showing if patient had preeclampsia, if she breastfeeds, lower risk of long-term chronic hypertension. So I think first educating moms. There's so much benefits to breastfeeding, both to um, uh, moms and babies, starting the conversation early during pregnancy. So, uh, so that's when the patient is at the postpartum floor, it doesn't fall on the nurse suddenly to deal with that and, and convince the patient. And important to note, we need to have infrastructure for mom to be able to breastfeed. So longer maternity leave, making sure all uh, workplaces have a lactation room, 
and all the conditions for mom to take breaks and, and to pump if mom has to go back to work early. Um, it, it, many things, again, factor into why we have low breastfeeding rates. Mm -hmm. I mean, thank you for saying that, because I think as, as a mother myself, having um, a very short maternity leave and coming back to the workplace, even in women-led organizations, the, the organization I'm with now, you know, we have lactation rooms, but at that time, five years ago, we didn't. And having to pump and close down the blinds in my office, it just was not a relaxing environment, which really inhibits your ability to produce milk. But I can't say enough about the benefits of having a doula, having a friend, having a supportive partner. And I'm just curious for, for, for our audience and people who are giving birth at Freighter um, and Children's, does Freighter and Medical College of Wisconsin directly connect the trained doulas to current patients? Um, do they increase visibility of the resources? Like how, how is that connection made now? How would someone know where to find a doula? Yes. Uh, so, by the way, we do have lactation consultants on the floor. I wish we had more, but we, we do have lactation consultants. And uh, we are working now with the doulas to, to refer patients to doulas even during pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Because, like you said, doulas will continue the support once the, the physician finished kind of the, the pregnancy care and the patient goes home and left to herself. That's really important where the doula support can uh, can happen. Uh, and um, especially in the breastfeeding area. Yes, we are connecting now patients to, to do less um, to promote breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. this, is this has been a very fruitful and beneficial conversation for me and from the engagement of our audience. I'm pretty sure that they've, they've benefited from it and getting their direct questions answered. And so with that, I want to thank you, Dr. Platnik, for joining us today, extending your expertise to us. We appreciate you really taking the time to talk with us about this very important topic. Um, so thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yes. And for those of you out there in the interwebs, if we didn't get to your question, we're so sorry, but please feel free to send us a note at conversations at mcw.edu. And folks, I hope you all join us next month for virtual coffee break and a conversation with a scientist. Yours in health, Raina. Have a good one. The Medical College of Wisconsin's Coffee Conversations with Scientists is sponsored by the Advancing a Healthier Wisconsin Endowment. Coffee Conversations with Scientists occur monthly as Facebook Live events and are produced by the Medical College of Wisconsin. We hope you join us next month for another virtual coffee break and a conversation with a scientist.